Hey everyone, um, I haven't had a chance to post, and it's not because I haven't wanted to, I have wanted to. I think that uh, a friend of mine said that Mercury's in retrograde, so it's just been one scheduling kerfuffle after another because, as I've shared before, my favorite thing to do now is to have a conversation with someone unless I'm recording someone's pitch. So um, I have some guests coming up in the future, but again, we still have to iron out uh, some uh, details on when we can um, get together and, and talk about certain topics. So in the meanwhile, I thought that I would just, um, to satisfy myself, uh, just do a kind of random check-in. Uh, I went to a meeting this morning in person, uh, did a little errand. I'm here with my puppy who's sleeping. And yeah, I just um, really have a need to continue to record and talk about and express what recovery looks like on a day-to-day -day basis and especially for those of us who are, which I include myself in this, are, are a little bit special needs. So, um, you know, maybe we have PTSD or complex PTSD, uh, maybe we struggle with uh, depression or we're bipolar or you know, a panic disorder, which is my case, um, you know, and just what does recovery actually look like? And I think I, I may have shared, I probably have, you know, I, I don't have anything really new to say. I just kind of say the same thing, maybe in different contexts, slightly different ways. But when I came into program, when, uh, people would pitch, people with time would pitch, they would only pitch the good stuff. And so as a newcomer, what I thought was going to happen was that um, I would come in, work the steps, get recovery, and that would lead me to the promised land where I will now be um, a uh, emotionally balanced securely attached normal person um, with no eating disorder, no effects of uh, growing up in alcoholic home, uh, no body image dysmorphia, nothing. That it, I, I kind of took it as the cure because again, coming into the rooms, that was the only model that we've had is you're sick and then you get a cure and then you're no longer sick. And uh, it was kind of very old school that uh, to share um, from the podium what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And the what it's like now was to emphasize all the promises. I'm not saying that's not a bad idea, but when that's all you hear, um, and that was all that I heard, Pretty quickly, I can start to feel that I'm not doing this right. I'm not doing recovery right because I don't feel cured. And then when I think I'm cured, 
that actually then sets me up because I'm no longer in step one because I think I'm cured. And then the disease just comes back even harder. So it took me a long time to um, really start to find people in recovery who really had what I wanted and I felt were really not afraid to speak the truth. I was very fortunate in that um, one of the first people I found uh, happened to be, uh, at the time, my therapist. I didn't know she was in recovery. And so that was like, again, a gift of grace. One of the other people that I found, this was all around like the 2006, was I started listening to AA speaker tapes because um, a guy in AA came to the OA meeting in Noe Valley. And I don't know, again, I don't know why he thought, you know, but that I, he had a collection of speaker CDs and for whatever reason, he thought that I'd be interested in them. And that is where I met Father Tom, Earl H., um, Bob E., just like all, you know, um, Lyle P., uh, uh, Sister B., I mean, I could just Patty, oh, I mean, just, I could just go through the list because he had that selection. And the one, uh, and there were two that really resonated for me, and that was Earl H. and Bob E. And for people who don't know, there was a division. So Bobby sort of comes into AA in the 70s and um, and starts being a circuit speaker, late 70s, early 80s. And there was division about him in 12-step because he talked about his problems in sobriety. He told the truth about you know, that recovery is messy. And there was huge controversy over this. This is in, you know, California AA, which was huge um, because that's the second big place. So maybe not the second, it's one of the big cities, I think New York, Texas, and California, and Chicago were like the big metro, and of course Akron, absolutely, were the big metropolitan uh, places that um, AA really flourished and really took a hold, uh, had a stronghold. So, um, and I want to continue to model uh, what um, Bob Earl set uh, in place, which is to tell the truth. Because when I, um, when life blew up in my face after 13 years, um, I felt betrayed. So I'm very into talking about like, what does it look like to be abstinent, working a very strong program and dealing with life on life's terms. And as a lot of you know, my favorite analogy is like swimming in the ocean or being in the ocean. It's like the ocean's not gonna change. You know, the ocean, you have no control over that ocean. You have no control over the weather, the storms, the waves, nothing, nothing like that. The fish that, you know, come up or sharks, no. But your quality of life in that ocean 
um, you absolutely have power to change. Um, and it's a interesting paradox that one of the ways that I got there was to completely surrender that I did not know how to live a serene, emotionally balanced life. Now, I wouldn't have said it that way, um, but basically it just took a constant admission of powerlessness until I got to a place where admitting defeat was no longer something that I was ashamed of. And I think I've shared this story that one of the ways I got there was imagining that um, I was in, at the time I lived in a studio in San Francisco and imagining that like one of those cartoon size, perfectly round, huge boulders rolled down the hill because I was in Bernal Heights and there was a hill behind us, rolled down the hill into and blocked um, my front door. And again, in this analogy, I was imagining that there was no back door. And I saw myself trying to push that boulder away and thinking that I was supposed, and this is so much the disease, thinking that I was supposed to have the strength and the ability to push a boulder that's like, you know, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 tons, you know, out of the front door and seeing myself, and I really played with this analogy, seeing myself like try everything, fucking everything. Now, of course, there's a phone, but I am not going to admit that I can't do this, right? Because I believe in my soul that I'm supposed to be able to deal with this. And that getting to a place where it's like, I imagine like my fingers getting bloody, like how tenacious I would be at trying to, to get this boulder. And then finally admitting defeat. And it would feel like defeat to me, and it did. But it's not defeat, if you understand what I'm saying. It is not defeat for me not to be able to push a 15 ton boulder out of my door like no so then I sort of worked with the analogy and I imagined picking up the phone and asking for help and because of the disease of um isolation and the disease of perfectionism I'm like let's let's just keep going with this analogy let's see like that I call 911 or I call the city and I am sobbing because or maybe I call a friend, who knows? You know, I call someone crying, ashamed, embarrassed that there is a huge boulder and I can't get it to move and I'm just trapped in my house. I'm just trapped in this small little life and I can't do anything. And then imagine someone just going like, okay, great, yeah, like, uh, this has happened to other people, boulders, rolling down hills, blocking doors, no escape. It's not a new thing, Nicole. Let's, uh, I'm going to give you a number, call the city. They have a whole division. And then I get to witness that, you know, I imagine that, you know, they, they come down and they get that boulder out of my front door and I walk out, right? And what I'm expecting to see 
because again, my distorted thinking, I'm expecting to see like one burly strong person who they had the capability to move that boulder. And instead when I come out, what I see is a huge crane, a huge forklift, you know, a hundred people working to get that boulder out of my, out of in front of my house. And it just hits me like it was never possible for me to do this. It was never possible for one person to be able to uh, do this. So what I think of as defeat or felt as defeat wasn't defeat. It was surrendering to a truth that I knew nothing about. Um, which is my powerlessness and coming to understand what I'm powerless over and what I'm not. Sorry, I had to take a break there, but he was sleeping in a way that was putting my arm to sleep. Um, so this all ties into, you know, a new understanding of recovery. Um, and that, you know, what I thought was recovery was that I was lost in the ocean. There was chaos everywhere. I was drowning every few minutes or I seemed to like get shit together and then it would fall apart and I'd be like, you know, in the ocean again, like struggling for my life. And I thought that, um, you know, the 12 steps I were going to teach me how to build a boat and I was going to, you know, row that boat to, you know, a perfect tropical island and live out the rest of my life there. And and that's not what it is. And so I think that, you know, in my experience, and everyone works this program differently because they have to, because our internal landscape is unique and different. And at the same time, there's enough similarity that keeps us together and, uh, and creates a foundation and a whole that can support everyone if you choose to join so learning that so brainwashing myself and Stacy has recently talked about this like she's doing it one way I did it a completely different way um just brainwashing myself around this level <clears throat> of surrender which is so complete it makes me wonder if there's anything that I actually have power over. And I, and I know there is, but what I'm trying to express is, you know, in the beginning of recovery, I thought, you know, I use the house analogy, right? Like one of my favorite analogies for growing up in an alcoholic home or dysfunctional home, it doesn't have to be alcoholic. If you have alcoholism in your family tree or mental illness in your family tree, or, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> religious mania in your family tree, anything that's an extreme behavior in your family tree, that family system got passed down and passed down and passed down. You didn't develop an eating disorder because you had nothing better to do. It was a response to the environment you were growing up in. And it's not to blame your parents, it's just to name it. Because they grew up in a in a family system just like the one that you grew up with and probably a little I, I don't know about you but in my case a lot worse um so uh anyway so my favorite analogy is that um in my family 
I inherit a house and I don't, I don't get to pick that. It's just what I inherit. Like every single person born in my family inherits this house and it's built based on the floor plan of the house of your parents, right? So I'm growing up in my parents' house. While I'm growing up, my house is being built. And it's pretty much being built with the same foundation as the one I grew up in. So that when I move out, I don't even realize it. Even if I'm like, you know, like I have a friend, like she's from the East Coast. She could not wait to fly her ass to the West Coast, get away, right? So even if while she was growing up, she had her house being built in California, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's the same floor plan. So that house, so I leave my parents' house and I think this is it, I'm out, but I move into that house and it's all I know. And I don't know that it's not normal that when you turn the front porch lights on, the stove comes on. Like, I don't know that it's like, oh, if I turn the front porch lights on, I just automatically go in the kitchen, and turn off the stove. I've been doing it my whole life. I don't even think about it. I don't even know that there's another way. And every room in the house, including the attic and in the basement is that that's where we store shit and we never talk about it again. And not only is all my shit down there, but I've got stuff in there that I've inherited that I haven't even looked at and it's all in the basement. Now, in the beginning of recovery, this this beginning of accepting defeat as surrender, as the honesty of what I am powerless over, in the beginning, the only place that I applied that to was the refrigerator because it was all that I could really know. I was also in ACOA and I had been in there for a few years, like five years or whatever. So I was starting to understand just the concept of the house and the inheritance. So I had that, but you know, my recovery was really young, so it it wasn't all tying together yet. And slowly over time with step one, I realized like, and then again, in a way like, oh, it's not just the fridge, it's the cabinets, it's the cooking. It's like, oh, okay. And then as I do the steps and, you know, I had to, because I qualified for so many programs, I've narrowed it down to kind of three, um, Al-Anon ACOA and then, um, uh, OA. So, uh, what do I reach for? Um, you know, uh, how do I try to emotionally self-regulate what substance and out of all the substances, my primary substance is food. And then what activates me, you know, what are my relationships and why do I have these relationships? So Alan on my relationships in present life or in present time with, you know, people who are also from either alcoholic homes or crazy homes or whatever. And then ACOA, how did I end up in these two programs? (laughs) How did I end up here? And then slowly over time, sort of recognizing like, oh, I'm powerless over this room too. I'm powerless over the foyer. But nothing in my house is going to change. Nothing. 
until I'm ready to look at it. And I don't get to decide when that is, by the way. I'm ready to look at it and I begin to get a level of clarity and awareness that, oh my God, this is crazy too. This room has been affected by our family disease. Oh, this room has been affected by our family disease. Uh, You know, and each time I do the 12 steps, you know, it's going down to the basement, pulling up a box. Now, recovery is slow for a reason. Because now let's go back to if I had been left to my own devices, if I, when I first came into recovery, if someone had given me the power, I would say, well, can we just completely renovate my entire house right now? There's no way I, I would think that that's what I want. Like my head, my brain, my intellect would think that, but my emotional body, which at that time I had no relationship with, I would have gone completely insane. I think I would have lost my shit. Uh, if that sort of radical of a change, I can't even think of like an analogy for that other than taking a fish and dropping it in the desert, you know, and just being like, good luck. You know, um, you wanted to get away from all that water. So, um, so anyway, so it has been this gradual process around really understanding all that I am powerless over and parsing this out to such a fine nuanced detail that I'm kind of like, well, what am I not powerless over? And I, I don't have a complete answer to this, but I have some thoughts. And one thing is, is that I'm not powerless over my willingness to take the next right action no matter how small that action is so let me give you an example i've pretty much come out into the open around having a panic disorder at one point i wanted to uh start doing yoga and my panic disorder is that i'm going to be somewhere and get triggered and have a panic attack in public and then have public humiliation So the idea of going to, this was years ago, the idea of going to a new yoga place was a big deal. So I had my friend who I trusted and knew would understand. I was like, so I thought about it. I thought about it. I really wanted to take this action and I kept hitting a wall and I would work my steps. I'd pray about it. I'd talk about it. So finally, I was like, and this is something that I've learned in program, which is that this step is too big, break it in half, make it a smaller step. And if that's too big, break that in half, make it a smaller step and break it down until you get to, that's something that I can do. And so what I did was I had my friend, I couldn't go by myself. I just, every time I would just decide something else was more important. And my friend drove me to the yoga place. We got out of the car. I walked up to the yoga place, looked at the flyers, 
and I touched the handle and I touched the door and then I was like, okay, that's it, let's go. And that counted, that counted. That was really an important step for me. Now, if you're not in recovery, you're like, girl, you're, that, you're kidding. That, and I'm like, that was such a huge success. Um, and, and then that led to me actually being able to take um, yoga classes. So, um, so anyway, so I think that, uh, the willingness to take the next right action, the praying for the willingness to take the next right action and praying, you know, I just, it's just a word we use now, you know, God is just a monosyllabic phrase, good orderly direction, group of drunks, group of dames, group of diners I heard today, um, you know, whatever, or it could be, you know, God, Mohammed, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then praying, just, you know, asking, beseeching, you know, praying for the willingness, even if you're just praying to your higher self or praying to the universe or setting an energetic intention, fucking does not matter, you know, so just praying for the willingness to be willing to take the next right action, no matter how small it is. I think that's something that we have power over we have the the power to choose we have free will the other thing i think is i do think that we have in the same it's the actually the same mechanism it's just applied a little bit differently just like take the next right action to think the next positive thought so i call it intervening on my own behalf I have the power to intervene on my own behalf. So people who know me know that I'm a big protector kind of character. So it, I, without thinking, if we are walking down the street together and I sense in any way that there is a threat to you, I will stand in front of you. I will jump in front of you. I will like, I will intervene. I will not hesitate for a second. Um, I also uh, will do that for myself and I have that's actually a gift that I've had is sticking up for myself now against other people I'm always very good at sticking up for myself against other people but now let's go back to I'm walking down the street with you someone says something to you and I jump in there and I'm just like, like a protector person. This is a analogy. Hopefully you would do it yourself. But for this point of this exercise, like, or demonstration, like I get in there and I intervene. I literally put my body between you and the judgment and shame that's coming at you. So I had to learn that I needed to do that for myself and that I had to learn to intervene on my own behalf. And I had to learn to do that regarding any nasty, unkind, shaming, perfectionistic, judgmental thoughts towards me. And this is where I started listening to only positive stuff because my brain was constantly going. And so it, so I would, I would get exhausted intervening on my own behalf. So what I would do is I would put a speaker on or a book that I liked. I highly recommend The Secret Garden. It's such an incredible metaphor there. Um, And I would just, and so when, and I would just have it on, like people listen to music, you know what I mean? I would just have speaker tapes, positive pitches, 
um, spiritual leaders, uh, books that were really positive, Harry Potter, absolutely. And I would just have them on while I was doing things all the time. And when I was out and about, you know, at work or whatever with people, I would have one in my ear. And the reason why I did that is I believed in the brainwashing. Like I imagined this positive energy coming in to my brain. And so imagine like, you know, a rug, we've all seen like, whether it's a rug or something that's like so dirty and it's gross. And then someone takes a hose and sprays it. You see all this dirt water, like drip out. I imagined my brain like that, that positive stuff was coming in and, you know, shooting and cleaning out my brain. So when I was like, I couldn't intervene on my own behalf or I was getting tired or whatever. All I would do is redirect my thoughts to what I was listening to. It's like, if I couldn't get my brain to shut up, I could give my focus kind of like a dog or a baby. Like, you know, they won't stop over, you know, doing whatever they're doing over there. Well, you distract them with something else. Right. And so I would distract myself and it has to be worth, you know, it has to work. It has to be a good distraction. So anyway, so those are the things that I think that, um, you know, uh, that I, I'm not powerless over. And the more that I accept my powerlessness, believe it or not, the more I'm just in tune with the ocean to kind of go back to that analogy the more, because I'm more and more surrendered to life on life's terms. Now that doesn't mean I don't react and I don't have, you know, absolutely. I totally do. But as a, as a way of living, you know, that, that really sinking down into step one, the principle of honesty and powerlessness and understanding that, um, admitting my powerlessness is not defeat because it was never something that I could have conquered. So by definition, it can't be defeat. It's it's my admission of powerlessness is about deepening my surrender to exactly who I am and my role on the planet and my humility and sort of becoming more one particle of the whole. Um, and you know, I think that's a good place to stop for this afternoon. So thanks for letting me just wax philosophical. Um, I didn't know that's what I was going to talk about. So I love you guys. All right. Bye.